If you have your Bibles with you today, would you take them out and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2, and that text is printed in the bulletin, but if you have your uh, Bibles, let's take them together and open God's Word so that we may read it and see it and study it. We're looking today particularly at verses 9 through 11, so we're in the midst of this magnificent section, really, of, of Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 6 through 11 is this hymn, or this poem almost, to the glory of Christ about his humiliation in the first half, and that was what we looked at last week. And now the second half of the hymn is his exaltation, his uh, ascension into heaven, to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so uh, our focus is on verses 9 through 11, but I want to read for us 5 through 11 so that we hear the entirety in its context. So let me ask you, if you're able, would you join me in standing today for the reading of God's Word? This is Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your perfect, holy, inerrant word given by the inspiration of your Spirit in order that we might be fully equipped, having everything that is necessary for life and godliness. And so, Father, we ask now that by the power of your Spirit, you will... Bless the preaching of your word because it is your word, which you promise does not return to you void. It accomplishes its purpose. And so, Lord, we ask that it will accomplish its purpose in our hearts today. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might see wonderful things in this portion of your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I want to remind us today that there are several purposes in preaching the Word of God on a weekly basis. One of the purposes, of course, is that it's one of the means that God has ordained for His people to grow in their understanding of God's Word, and and even just to grow in our knowledge of it, to to understand the content of what is there better, to grow in our, our grasp of the whole Scriptures and how it ties together, how it points us to Christ that we might know his commandments better, that we might know better how we're to live in light of Christ and his grace. But there's a higher purpose in the preaching of God's word. It's not merely that we might know, sort of on an intellectual level, that we might learn new knowledge about what is there, but even more that, that by the power of the Spirit blessing the preaching of the word, that he will draw the eyes of our hearts to see Christ to have a new vision of our Savior in all of his beauty and all of his glory, high and lifted up, that we might come before him in worship. That even as we read the scriptures and even as we hear it proclaimed, that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. 
that these words that His Spirit has given to us will, will give us in our hearts a new love for Christ, a new appreciation for His grace, a, a new knowledge of our need for Him and His provision for us. That, that's the true purpose of preaching. No matter where we are in the Scriptures, whether it's the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Prophets, the Gospels, the Epistles, no matter what it is, our goal is that we will be drawn to Christ. All of the Scriptures point to Him. And yet this text that we have here in Philippians is particularly well-suited to this task. This is particularly well-suited as it gives us this picture of Christ in his exaltation. This picture of Christ being high and lifted up, being seated on his throne in heaven, given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a scripture that is particularly suited to lift eyes of our hearts to him, to take them off of of the things of this world which so easily ensnare and entangle us, which our hearts so easily pine after and find ourselves tripped up by so regularly, don't they? And here we see this image of our Savior in his beauty and his glory. Our prayer as we would start this, as we've just prayed, is that, that the Spirit will use this to really enrapture the eyes of our hearts to to give us a new image of Christ. That it will inspire us to love him more, to seek him more dearly. That's my prayer, that the Spirit will so impress this portion of his word on our hearts that we'll find this ultimately compelling. Ultimately compelling. This is a passage here that, that shows us something of the reward of Christ's humility. The reward of Christ's humility. I know for many of us, it it can almost seem a little bit maybe unworthy to speak of a reward of humility. Our first thought could be, no, no, don't, don't, we don't think of the reward. We should be good just for the sake of being good. We should humble ourselves because that's the right thing to do, because that's what God says. We don't do it just to gain a future reward. We think of it almost as though if we do it for the sake of the reward, that that ruins it that we haven't really sought to be good for the sake of the goodness itself. But we have to remember, the Bible never tells us to be good for the sake of being good. The Bible tells us to walk in the manner in which Christ walked, because that is the obedience that God will reward. 1 Peter 5 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. The promise is that for believers we follow the pattern that Christ has set for us that even as he humbled himself under the mighty hand of God and Christ vindicated and exalted and lifted him up in due time, so it will be for believers that we too humble ourselves and he will lift us up in due time as well. These verses which show us God lifting up, vindicating, and exalting Christ, I want to focus on it in three ways. First, to look at Jesus' past exaltation that he has been exalted by the Father. Second, to look at his future exaltation, that he will yet be exalted by the Father. And then to conclude with some implications of that for us now today. So Jesus was exalted once in the past. There is yet more exaltation to come in the future. We live here in the middle. What does it all mean for us today? Here's what we see of Jesus' past exaltation. It's in verse 9. And it starts with this word, doesn't it? Therefore... Therefore, which is telling us because of what has happened in verses 6, 7, and 8 of Jesus 
becoming obedient to the will of his father, humbling himself under God's mighty hand, humbling himself from being in the form of God and the equality with God, but not counting that as a privilege to be taken advantage of, a thing to be grasped, humbling himself and being born in human likeness. Not only human likeness, but taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself again and became obedient to death, even the lowest possible death, that is death on a cross. Therefore, because, as we remember, Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father, even though that wasn't his first choice. Father, if it is possible, take away this cup. That wasn't his choice, but if that was the Father's will. Jesus was obedient. He was humbling himself before that, and therefore, it says, therefore, God has exalted him. He exalts him to the highest position. And so, when we think of just big picture of the life of Christ, many theologians talk about a V pattern, that he starts high, he goes down in humility, becoming obedient to the will of the Father, all the way to the very bottom, which is death on a cross, being buried and remaining under the power of death for a time. But then he starts to be exalted, being raised from the dead on the third day, ascending back into heaven, being seated at the right hand of God the Father. There's this pattern of humiliation and exaltation. In fact, many of our kids who have been working on the catechism in their Sunday school classes will be familiar with this. Right? We ask, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation? And our kids will know, some of them anyways, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. And that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. But then we ask, where did his exaltation consist? And his exaltation consisted in rising again from the dead on the third day, ascending up into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming again to judge the world on the last day. Christ, as he has humbled himself, will be exalted now by the Father. This is These three verses are the upward arc of Christ's exaltation. He is being vindicated for his obedience, for his sacrifice that the Father found perfectly acceptable. It says, therefore God has highly exalted him. What in, in our English Bible is two words, highly exalted. In, in the original, that's one word. And it's this one word that gives this picture of super exaltation. It, it's that exalted was not enough. It doesn't just say that God has exalted him. It says God has super exalted him. He's lifted him up to the highest possible place. This is the only place in the New Testament we have this word. Is Jesus is super exalted. And here's the great meaning of that. You know what the, the meaning of it is that, that Christ was exalted to the highest place? The great message of that for us is Jesus reigns. Jesus is enthroned in heaven higher than all the principalities and powers of this world, higher than any other ruler. He is super exalted, and therefore what this means for his people, Jesus reigns. You see, when we talk about Jesus' exaltation, this is, this is not merely a point of just sort of systematic theological doctrine that we want to nail down, that this tells us Jesus' location. Where is he? Well, he's not in the grave. He's not on earth. He's in heaven. Specifically, he's seated at the right hand of the Father on his throne. Later, he'll come again, so he'll move from there. But it's not just telling us about where he is, it's telling us about what he's doing. It's telling us that Christ 
has been granted all authority, that he now reigns. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. He's telling us, and this is his prayer for this church, that they might know the great power that's at work in them. And it's this power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over the church, which is his body. He says what he wants the church to know is, he wants them to know about the reign and the power of Jesus and his exaltation, not merely as a point of doctrine, but as a a message of encouragement. To say to them that you are God's people, you are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are his bride, he is the, the groom of the church, and do you know where he is? Do you know what he's doing? Do you know what, when you look around at your life and see all of the, the messes that it involves and all of the discouragement, all of the frustration, all of the, the brokenness, everything that we see, he wants us to know, do you know where Christ is? He is on his throne ruling over all things. There is nothing on earth that has somehow escaped his rule and dominion. So no matter what problems you are facing, you can have this confidence that they are not somehow escaping the control of Christ. It has not somehow uh, slipped outside of his notice that that is now going on apart from his awareness and his permission. That there is nothing that comes to you now that does not first pass through the loving hand of your Heavenly Father. This is the good news. This is the message of Christ's exaltation. As he says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So here is Christ. As the Son of God, he was already king. But now, in his exaltation after his resurrection, he is exalted, he is reigning with all of the authority as the incarnate Christ. Now, we will yet see there's actually greater authority that is yet to come. There will be a future exaltation, a greater kingship that Jesus will enjoy on that last day. In fact, we read several times in the scriptures from Psalm 110, it's in Hebrews 1, where God says to to Jesus, the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until, remember what it says? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now that's going to be an important point. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But this is just to say, he is currently sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is currently reigning and ruling Lord over his church. This is good news. This is a reason for worship. This is a reason for comfort for believers. Just think of how the church here in Philippi might have heard this. We know they were a a small persecuted band of believers, a minority who no doubt were being ridiculed by family and friends, following a crucified Savior. They were following this guy who had suffered the cruelest, most humiliating death that the Roman government could hand out. Why would they want to follow him? And yet, Paul says to them, do not fear. The world thinks that they have won through the crucifixion, but what we see is the reality that God vindicated Jesus and has reigned, has exalted him, lifted him up, vindicated him now to the highest place. He says to the church, church, you may be struggling now, but you need to remember that you are following the one to whom every knee shall bow. 
you are, your groom is the one that every tongue will one day confess as Lord. And that's got to be a great encouragement for them. You might feel out of place when you commit as a disciple of Christ and have that first interaction where you realize that the ways of Jesus are not always well received in this world. But take heart. Christ has overcome this world. You remember the same thing from Hebrews chapter 12 when, when he's exhorting the church to run with endurance, to not give up, not to grow weary, not to lose heart because the way of Jesus is difficult, because it's unpopular. And he points them to Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he says, consider him, consider him that you might not grow weary or, give, or lose heart. If we are growing weary and losing heart, open, open your scriptures to Philippians and say, this is the one. We follow him. It's not popular these days. It will not win us accolades or position now. But there is coming a day when he is the one to whom every knee will bow. When the emotions for you that are most dominant when you think about the future, if, when they turn to worry, fear, doubt, that's the time when we need to open the eyes of our hearts to, to see Jesus again and, and to remind ourselves by the power of his word that Jesus is not going to be overcome. The one who is watching over you knows all things. This is the power for us to humble ourselves like Christ humbled himself. This is what gives us that ability to humble ourselves as the last two weeks we've been talking about humility and, and I know you're relieved that we're not talking about humility again today. I, I know I am. Those are, are difficult words that we've been looking at. Humility is hard and, and we're no good at it. I'm no good at it. So it's easy then to read verses about humility, review what the Bible has to say about humility, pour dust and ashes on our head and make ourselves feel terrible because we can't live up to that standard. But, but here's the hope. Here's the hope, the first hope, is that just like Jesus humbled himself and was exalted, that he says that same pattern holds true for you. That if you will but humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, God will lift you up in due time. That's who he is. That's what he does. And then the second hope is this, that, that King Jesus is already exalted. The one who is reigning has his eyes on you. And when your humility places you in an awkward position, when that is difficult, when that is uncomfortable for you and you don't want to do it and you feel like you're losing, you need to remember that, that Jesus is reigning and he sees and he will reward. He rewards that obedience. Even if no one else sees the sacrifice you make by humbling yourself, Jesus sees. He knows, and great will be your reward in heaven. We have to stop falling into the trap of evaluating our actions based on how they're perceived by those around us and evaluate them based on how they're perceived by Jesus, the only one whose opinion truly matters. He is highly exalted by God, and God has also bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He has a new name. It says to us that he has been given the name above every name. Now, we read verse 9 and you notice it doesn't tell us the name. What is that name that is above every name? At least not at first. 
It's in verse 11. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we don't typically think of Lord as being a name. We think of Lord as being a title. But we need to remember the way the word is used in the Bible. In the Old Testament, Lord, the way we often see it in our Bibles, when it's printed in small caps, L-O-R-D, all in capital letters, that is translating the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. That name was uh, counted so holy by the Jews, they would not pronounce it. And so even in the, the scriptures, they would replace it with this Greek word, Lord, kurios. So when it says here that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's telling us the name that is above every name that has now been given to Jesus. Kurios, Yahweh. He's giving him the name of God and telling him that at that name, every knee will bow. In Isaiah 42, it's very interesting. It says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I'm Kurios. I am the Lord. That is my name. And now that name is given to Jesus. We know oftentimes in the Bibles, there are many stories where someone is given a new name. And here it is for Jesus. God the Father himself bestowing on Jesus a new name for his obedience as a reward of his exaltation given this name. Hebrews 1.3 tells us this, that he, Jesus, is as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. He has inherited, been given by God this new name. He has been given new glory. New glory that as he reigns in heaven, as the risen Redeemer, the one who has overcome death, paid for the sins of his people, been obedient to the will of the Father, now he is exalted with the name of God. Now, that's where we begin to make this transition from what has happened in the past. He has been raised up to heaven. He has been seated at the right hand of the Father. He has been given a new name to what will happen in the future. And it's in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You see, he's already been given the name, but now it says in the future, at that name, every knee shall bow. That's not happening yet, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That's coming. There's coming that day, but it's not happening yet. And it's interesting, we live in the middle of those two exaltations of Christ. We live right in between verse 9 and verse 10. He has been given the name. It's not yet to the point where every knee is bowing to that name. He is king, although his kingship is not yet recognized universally. His enemies have not yet been made a footstool for his feet. And in God's kingly patience, wisdom, and forbearance, he still permits his enemies to exist. He still permits his enemies even to rage against him. For now. For now, he has not yet flexed the strength of his mighty right arm against them. But, as it says, there is coming a day when every knee will bow to Christ. And every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every knee will bow. Not one will escape. And there will be some of those knees that bow gladly to Christ, that willingly and joyfully have longed for that day and have looked for it with great expectation and are now glad to give him the worship and the glory that is due his name. 
And there will be other knees that bow reluctantly, that have raged against him in life, that have not loved him, and yet are now forced to admit his eminence, his might, his power, his reign over all things, his superiority. One way or the other, every knee will bow to Jesus. One way or the other, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Can I tell you how eager I am for that day? What a good day that is going to be for all those who have looked to Jesus for their hope in this life, that have looked to him for their salvation and for life. This is, these verses, these glorious verses, I believe, these are not verses that we need to sort of theologically dissect and, and, and map them out so that we understand them. These are verses to exalt him, just to digest and to meditate on and to, to long for this day. And when we find ourselves in a position where our hearts are, are not enraptured with that, and that happens, when we find ourselves failing to long for that, to go back to this text and, and to read it over and over and say, that will be the day that we have longed for. I long for it. I long for the day when my own heart and mind will confess 100% that Jesus is Lord, that there will no longer be these pockets in resistance in my heart that still fail to confess that. Those pockets of my heart that still want to confess that Jeff is Lord. Because that exists in all of us, doesn't it? And, and here's the good news. Those will be overcome by the power of Christ. Those will be overcome, and that will be great. I also look forward to the day when, when every knee shall bow. When we will no longer experience the trials and tribulations that we experience in this life because we are part of the new creation but still surrounded by the old creation, surrounded by the sin and brokenness of this fallen world, will no longer suffer because of poor choices of leadership, will no longer be at each other's throats. Can't we just be done with that? Can't we just all align under the banner of Christ? That day is coming. That day is coming when Jesus Christ, who humbled himself into the obscurity of death on a cross and was buried and remained under the power of death, when he will be universally acknowledged now as king. And that those who have scoffed at him will bow before him. Those who mock and deride him now will confess that he is Lord. Those who have doubted him will acclaim him. Those who have loved him will gladly praise his name. Those who have followed him will be vindicated with him. Those who worship him now, whether wholeheartedly or mostly heartedly or, or longingly, those who worship him will worship him then with full assurance and with great joy. What does this mean for us? If this is true, if we long for this great day of, of the exaltation of Christ that is yet to come, what does it mean for us now? Here's just a couple of quick implications of this text for life today. I think the first implication is this. God is glorified when Christ is confessed as Lord and submitted to. That's how it ends, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that means that even now, when we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord with our lips and by our lives, that that gives glory to God. That's how God is primarily to be glorified. 
I would also like to think he's glorified when, when Tim Tebow makes a touchdown and points at him. But the real way he's glorified, he tells us, it's by our obedience. It's by ordinary, everyday lives of humble, not noticed obedience. Humbling ourselves beneath him, confessing Jesus Christ is Lord in our lives. That's why he's telling us this. He's telling us to encourage us, to begin living this now. The second implication for us is that that our hope for us is tied up in Christ's exaltation. Our hope is in his exaltation. And therefore, when we read this passage, we recognize that this is a matter of great joy for us. This is a matter of great hope for us. Again, as we said, we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are his bride. Don't we, doesn't a bride therefore take great joy when her groom is exalted? When her groom receives glory? When he is lifted up and acclaimed and praised? That's good for the bride as well. And we as believers in Christ, we say, look to that day. Our Savior, our groom, Jesus Christ, high and lifted up. This is a text for joy and consolation. Here's a third implication. When we submit to Jesus, when we confess his reign in our worship, we here are joining with the worship in heaven. We are anticipating now that great day. See, there is coming a day when it will be a, a, a great confession of Jesus as Lord. When we do that now, we're anticipating that. This is a foretaste of that great day. That as we now, together as the body of Christ, would submit ourselves to his word would read it, would honor it, would listen to it, obey it, store it up in our hearts. We're anticipating now what is yet to come on that day. And here's the last implication. Let this example strengthen and encourage you to follow in his footsteps by choosing the path of personal humility even when it feels hard. Even when it's not desirable, would you choose it? God exalted Jesus after he humbled himself, and he will exalt you too. Here's the promise of 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up. That he may lift you up with Christ. That he may give to you the joy of being seated with Christ in his presence, acclaiming him. That's the promise to all who have humbled themselves under the lordship of Christ. Let's do that with great joy, with great expectation, with great encouragement today. For we see this image of Jesus Christ, our King, being universally recognized. Our King reigns as Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your word which is given to encourage us, which is given to strengthen us in the midst of life's difficulties. And Father, we ask, will you continue your patient work in us. And Lord, will you continue by your Spirit to present images of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in glory and in beauty to us. May we think on these things and, and gain strength from them. May we think on these things and gain hope from them. May we be encouraged to love, to have joy, to have peace. Will you work that which is pleasing in your eyes, in our lives? We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.